0: to be looking at the book of James. The the easy thing is to just teach on Palm Sunday, that's just one item, but to get a whole book. And so uh, Mark said, take as much time as I needed, just finish by noon. If you um, have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to James because we're going to be looking at pretty much the whole book with some cross-references as much as possible. Um, It's in our New Testament survey class. Uh, James is the topic, and there's a lot of background information that I pulled together that's in your handout. So I'm not going to go too detailed into the background. We'll hit a few things. But one of the things is, in the background, that James, who wrote the book, there's a little bit of controversy over which James, because he only identified himself as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's probably around four or five Jameses. I mentioned them in your uh, in your Handout of James that are in the Bible that, you know, could be, but maybe not. The most scholars would tend to agree that this is the half brother of Jesus. So that means that he was one of Mary and Joseph's other siblings or other children, Jesus's other siblings, as he was growing up. And probably most of you who have studied Scripture know that Jesus's family, particularly the brothers and sisters, weren't really excited to have a brother as a God or as God. And so, I mean, you can imagine any of you who have older brothers and sisters, uh, I would imagine your older siblings probably presented themselves as a God, that they were in charge and you wanted to have nothing to do with them. James was probably in that boat to some degree. But it's interesting as we read the book of James that we see a lot of allusions to the things that Jesus taught. Obviously, it's a book in the Bible. It's going to be spiritual and theological, but he uses some of the same literary devices that Jesus did. Of course, Jesus wasn't a literary device. he, was, he spoke orally, but as James, who was also amongst the oral tradition as it began to transfer into more of a written and the writing became better, that he recorded his book and left in a lot of great imagery. You know, Jesus was always walking down the street and he would see a fig tree and he would bring some spiritual truth to the fig, uh, from the fig tree to bear it out. Get it? To bear it out. And so James did very similar Things and the, some other uh, references. He had a lot of references to the Old Testament, to the Torah, the law, and uh, you could tell that he was a, a very good, well-educated, practicing Jew who is now in a new boat, in this new form of, is this new Christianity moving away from Judaism or being a Jew, open up the gospel to the Gentiles and starting with a new covenant this is a transferring time, a transitional time in the life of all Christians. And in fact, that's who he is writing writing to. So we'll talk about this. But I want to look at the book of James sort of as if you went to like a theological library, if any of you are familiar with one perhaps, that within the library there are books of information. And so we're going to look at the book of James as if it were a theological library on practical uses of our life during this time. Now, he was writing to first century Christians, but it's also applicable to us today. And so we're only going to look at five books and we'll try to hit several of his major themes in the book of James. But this is the crux that It is practical. It's one of the most practical books in the Bible, probably one of the first written. And some have even said that it could be a compilation of other people's sermons, perhaps Jesus, and practical ways to be able to bear that out. Now, if this were in a theological library, they're divided up into sections. The section that this would be in, probably would be in the perspective section, because James was really focusing on changing your perspective, changing the perspective of these fledgling Christians at a time when they're not doing so good. The first wave of persecution is coming at this point, and so they needed some help and some encouragement. Perspective was the thing that needed to change in their life. Do any of you agree from your own lives that maybe sometimes a little bit of perspective helps us move on to the next phase or the next function of life. So to illustrate that, I want to talk a little bit about perspective. Have you ever seen pictures like this where the guy's got the sun right there on his finger? He's just kind of holding it like a basketball. Well, most of us are aware that that's impossible. That, that would never work. But if you had a young kid who looked at the picture, who wasn't familiar with the laws of physics, perhaps they would be persuaded to believe that indeed you could put the sun on your finger and hold it up for everyone to see. Until what would happen to the child before he, that would bring him to the point of understanding that that's impossible. What would he have to realize? The size of the sun, the, the distance of the sun, the feel of the sun. So basically, it's the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts, but you got to face it. In this case, um, the truth reveals, and uh, as Jesus says, the truth will set you free. Not any truth, but God's truth will set you free. Now, there's another picture there of a, of a guy picking up a golf ball with both hands. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? But we all know that there's something fishy about this picture. It's that the camera was so close to the golf ball that it looks really big compared to the man who's standing a lot further away. But in the picture, two dimensions, you can't really see that. So it's the third dimension that bears out the truth of this situation. It's called forced perspective. And as I was thinking about James and realizing how he's his desire is to help us to have a true understanding of perspective, a full 3D and maybe even a, a 4D experience with life and how we perceive it, we see that James wants to keep you from being fooled into falling into a forced perspective. Uh, so I think that's the way life is a lot of times. And this is an example that I was at the mall. The other day, have you ever seen those little mall kiosks? They're kind of in the middle. So when you're walking by, they like ambush you because they want to sell their wares. So as I walk by, they blobbed this lumpy, grainy substance on my hand and said, Hey, rub this in. Well, I'm kind of stuck now. I have grainy white substance, slightly damp. So as I rub it in, they're pouring water and rinses it off into the bowl. And all of a sudden my hands feel so soft. They tricked me into being exfoliated. But I was happy. I was thrilled that my hands were so soft. And they asked the question, have your hands ever felt that soft? And I was thinking, well, probably the last time that I exfoliated, which I couldn't think when that was. But uh, they said, but you know what? Now your pores are open. Here is some lotion. They got a little dab of lotion and they put on now, rub the lotion in. That's going to close the pores because if my pores stayed open, germs would get in. That sounded pretty bad to me, so I was hooked. So I rubbed that in, and I thought, "Oh, good." And and the lady, she spoke with a French accent. So anytime people speak with an accent, they seem a little more authoritative, don't they? they know a little bit more than what you do because you just have your accent. And so I was convinced. And she was from France. Oh, yeah, but France, but she moved from Israel. And that's where this salty substance was. Israel, have you ever been to Israel? No, but I would love to go. I'm a pastor at a church. I would love to go to Israel. And you're telling me that this salt came from Israel? How great. Another hook, right? So now it came time for the price. So for the little bottle of the salt was uh, $69. And for the lotion, it was another $69. and. If I bought them both, they would throw in another set for free. CO2 for one deal. So I thought, well, that's pretty good. And I do like this exfoliated skin. And so as some of you, my wife's here somewhere. She knows I'm a processor and I usually try not to make decisions quickly because it gets me into trouble. So I said, this all sounds great and I'm thrilled and it smelled so good. I, I was just thrilled, but I'm going to think about it. And I started walking away and what did she say? But wait. There's more. Listen, okay, if you buy just one, then you get the other one, the lotion for free. If you just buy one of the salt rub, you get the lotion free and you just get that. So now my price is cut down in half. I'm getting half as much, but at least I've got less money to have to spend. So I thought, well, I mean, at least I could take it home and try it for a while. But again, I said, you know what? I'm just going to think about it. I started walking away. She follows after me. and You know what she says? You're killing me here. <laughs> Hooks were coming out. And I was thinking, that's probably good. So now she said, listen, for half the price, you can just buy one. And I'll throw in a bar of organic soap. She pulled out from a thing. And you'll get another gift. I like gifts. So she went around and opened a drawer and pulled out this exquisite gift bag. Made out of paper, but it was gold paper. That I could put the products in and carry them around. I thought that's kind of cheap. <laughs> I was already starting to lose interest because do you, Oh, and, and, and it, it was half price. And then the, the next offer was just, just buy the salt rub. And I said, but if I just buy the salt rub, my pores will be open and germs will get in. How could you tell me to do that? So she's losing credibility with me when she says, your wife has lotion. Anyone has lotion. Just get any lotion. It doesn't matter. Just get the salt rub. So it's going, and she says, do you have daughters? Do you have any kids? Yes, I have two daughters. Oh, you have two daughters. Do you have a wife? Yes. Oh, they would love this too. So now she's trying to pull in, you know, the gang. So I would have other reasons of myself to buy this product. So anyway, the price is now down to sixteen ninety nine. dollars And I thought, you know, if she's come down that far. So I said, seriously, I appreciate all this. I love it. But I'm really going to go. I I was able to get away. I went and pulled out my smartphone. I told Siri or I asked Siri, how much is uh, salt exfoliation, salt scrubs from bed, body and bath and beyond or whatever. She figured it out. Anyway, I had a price of half of that price that I could get. And it was a sugar rub. And I thought, that's sweet. It's a lot, it's a lot better than the salt. And so when I, when I was ambushed and went through this process, do you see the forced perspective? And that had, had I not had to think about it three or four times, I would have fallen into this trap of paying three or four times the amount for this exfoliation. And I just needed to be exfoliated of the whole thing and not even have to get into it. It was just, it just was not important for me. But I thought about it, though, as true to life, that in life, people are always trying to sell their perspective to you. And they will force you to believe something. And be sure, be careful not to believe everything on the Internet, because just because it says that's the price doesn't mean it is. You have to go check it out for yourself. But people will force their perspective on you in order for you to take their perspective and buy their wares. James is talking to a group of people. He says in verse 1, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Greetings. Who are the twelve tribes? These are the Israelites who have been dispersed. Or the Greek word there offers kind of a, an idea of being scattered like seed. Out of Israel, out of the promised land, and out into these other nations. Why? Why? Well, in Deuteronomy, it says that if you don't keep my commands, I will disperse you. Sure enough, Israel took that on themselves. They were dispersed. But again, in this looking at perspective, as they were punished by being dispersed in these other nations as scattered seed, what began to be shared and germinate and eventually grow and transform the world? The word of God, Christian communities began to sprout up all around. So what was initially a a punishment? God took the bad for good and used it to his glory, certainly in his plan as the scattered people that James was writing to were growing in their faith. I think one of the reasons is the counsel of James that he brought to them. So we're just going to pull out a few of these books. Let's go on to the books. Oh, there we go. Faith in Works is going to be the first book of the thing that we're going to look at. And it's where James starts off at the very beginning. He starts off in verse 2 and he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Are there trans Huh? You can't see it? Thank you. Thank you. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. So he's telling these Jews that are, that are not having a great day. They're in the middle of this first round of persecution. They're, they don't have their home base, so they're not wealthy. They're poor. The Jews who they used to be a part of, the, the Judaizer Jews are not really with them because now they have moved on. To Christianity, to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And the Gentiles were not excited about him because they've not yet received the Jesus Christ. So they were in a very precarious position. This is who James is writing to. And he says, remember, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, who also said that prior to that time? Who? Who? This is one of the first books written, so we don't have a lot of Pauline epistles at this point. What? Jesus? Jesus said that. Yeah, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. And why was he saying this? In the context there in John, he is talking about having just told his disciples that he's going to be leaving them. At this point, these Jews have realized Jesus has left. He resurrected, and that's encouraging, but he left and went on. Everything that Jesus said is coming true, and as a result, their faith is still lacking. Why is that? Everything is coming true, and yet their faith is lacking. They're having difficulty in the situation of being kind of left on their own. He's saying, remember... What Jesus said, you're going to encounter various trials, and now James is saying, please understand that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness, steadfastness, not fatness. And the steadfast and the steadfastness will have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. That reminds me of Ephesians 4. I just wanted to look over about where Paul was talking. Now Paul wrote his letter after James. But in Ephesians 4, let's see. Is my light on? I'm not going to push any buttons. Okay, here we go. In, uh, Ephesians 4, chapter 10, chapter, chapter 4, verse 11. Here we go. Here we go. Chapter 11. And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to... Now, what are those? Those are the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave to Christians in order to do what? He goes on. Uh, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building... Building what? Exfoliation factories? Nope. Building up the body of Christ until, so it tells us what he's doing. He gives us the gifts to equip the body to a certain point. Verse 13. We can keep equipping until we all attain the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God. To, Mark's circle there, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he tells why. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes, by people trying to force their perspective on you. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. Again, an idea of this maturity or to be brought to perfection that James was just talking about, from whom the whole body joined and held together uh, by every joint, which is, uh, which it equi- which it is equipped for each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's a key. And James is going to talk about a little bit of love as well, but you have gifts in order to do what? Just do your part. It's to equip the body. That's very well may be your part. But it's not just you by yourself. You do your thing at your house and let someone else do their thing at their house. The church is a community. And we're all given these different gifts so that we can come together and we can build ourselves up in love by speaking the truth in love, keeping you from being tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. James has something similar that he says right here. In verse six, he says, "Here, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person, uh, for that person, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded in all his ways." Unstable. He's a double minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So here again the encouragement to these Jews who are dispersed, scattered about, reminded that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and so you should consider it what? All joy. Now is that a perspective changer? That all of a sudden now that the the trial, which the, the Greek word here for trial is something that you bear under, something that you have to endure. Well, it produces endurance. Now, what does that mean the next time that you encounter a trial? You're better able to endure. So the more mature you are as a Christian, which is nothing against the immature Christians, something to look forward to, that as you grow in your faith, and you practice it correctly, that's important. Perfect practice makes perfect, not just practice, right? Perfect practice makes perfect. Living out the Christian life the way that you're supposed to, vis-a-vis, number one, you should consider it joy when you encounter various trials. That has an effect. It will affect your life, and it will make you better. And if you're a young Christian and you're not too sure, you should look to whom to see how it bears out. Well, you look to Jesus. Jesus is always the answer in Sunday school. But you should also look to here on earth a more mature Christian and see how they live. Now, if you're looking at a mature Christian or let's just say someone who's been saved, that your opinion is longer than you. They've been at Champion Force for 15, 20 years. They should be somewhat mature, right? Are we tracking? But they have a crisis and they handle their crisis less than how James indicated, so not with much joy. But with haughty words, with uh, bad attitudes, with evil emails, with um, continued prayer requests that just don't seem prayer requests. They're more complaint requests. How does the younger Christian look and see and understand? What is he seeing and understanding? There's, there's nothing to this. Hey, when I, whenever I have a crisis, I can go back and nix everything that I learned about my, my, my thought life and my speaking life and my uh, attitude. I can take a pass on that because I see it done. Well, that's exactly what James and certainly Jesus wanted to avoid. He said, I told you so. You're going to have trouble. You need to bear up right now to, in order to... React or respond correctly. I call it respond because when you react to something, it's like you're not prepared. You just have a reaction. But when you respond to something, it is as if you have already thought through it. You've prepared. And now the next time this happens or something similar, I know what not to do. More importantly, I definitely know what to do. If you've been safe for 15 or 20 years, are you getting better at what you do and the way that you respond to anything? That comes, it says, as you encounter, doesn't say that you cause, it's not even your fault. You encounter various trials. But let's move on, because he doesn't just talk about, uh, tribulations and trials. He also talks about temptation. For those who are tempted. Now, is temptation a trial? Yes. <laughs> You're looking at me as this loaded question. It is a trial, and can God take your mistake and use it to teach you a lesson so that you never do that again, or at least theoretically? But yes, as you cause your own problems with your own sin and your own desires, decisions, misunderstandings, forced perspectives, as you do that, are you taking note brothers and sisters who are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you have a pass. You can act as evil and ugly as you want, whatever. But if you are in Christ, you have a huge responsibility, not just to the younger and immature Christians to show them how to live life, but to Christ himself who gave himself for you so that you do not have to give yourself, but instead you have to act yourself. Well, this is a good time to say, those who do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he's talking about faith. And he says, or Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that it's by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's of the free gift of God. Not of any works that you do so that no one can boast. Salvation is the gift of God. Romans six twenty three says, The wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Now, those of you who are Christians are going, please move on from the gospel. We know this. Then act like it. Act like you believe that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Again, that is a perspective changer. Understand? And with that perspective we understand how to live life on this earth and you don't get a pass and you don't get a buy. But what if I mess up? Am I going straight to hell? No. Not unless you are never of the faith, then you're going to hell. I smile when I say that, but it's not funny. The wages of sin is death, but God took the opportunity to send his son to take the sacrifice so that we do not have to. This is who James is talking to, and this is what the Bible applies to. And the Bible is the way that we have a changed perspective. So those of you who are not in faith, understand the changed perspective from just getting by to having abundant life. That's so what Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life amongst and in the midst of trials Is hope. It's that L piece that Mark taught us about. Confident expectation of what is to come. As opposed to just getting by. And hoping for the best. That is a changed perspective. So moving on. Whether it's your fault. Whether it's the result of just living in a sinful fallen world. You know bad things happen to good people. My wife was driving down Tombaugh Parkway. uh, Business not the highway. And a car came out and totaled the van. She's fine. But you know how the insurance companies figure all that stuff. Anyway, the van's totaled. It's gone. We don't have a van anymore, which is really frustrating. And I want to be non-Christian about it. But, and every time I see a Toyota minivan, if you drive one, I'm envious of you to the point that I catch myself and say I'm not supposed to be envious of other people's stuff. And remind how I'm supposed to act and respond to the situation. And God keeps bringing those minivans around me to do what? Yes. To allow me to gain endurance. And the next time I see a minivan, I feel better. So whether it's your fault, whether it's sin, whether it is someone else's fault, uh, or even if God is directing you, will, will God send you a trial? If you say no, talk to Job, who would definitely disagree. It was God's the one that said, hey, why don't you consider my servant Job? (laughs) Who in here would like to be another uh, volunteer to be a Job in the life for other Christians to look at and gain endurance? Yes, not, not many. Carolyn, would you? No, she says no, absolutely not. No, but yes, God will bring those trials on you. But then James goes on to be sure that you understand the perspective. Let me see if I can find it here. Let me see if I wrote down. Well, he says that it is, oh, here we go. Verse 15, uh, 15. That's a 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Remember what produces steadfastness, steadfastness under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and himself tempts no one. So that's just a good perspective for Christians to have. God doesn't send the temptations. That's that finger doing this. Come here. I want to force a perspective on you. You're going to love this. And if you do this, you get another one free. Yeah, it's great. And I've got this great gift bag it all goes in. And you're going to look suave. And it's going to be well worth your time. And what are you thinking in the moment? Smells good. Feels good. Yes. Let me think about it. Because when you think about it, you're remembering those other trials and letting the testing of your faith produce that steadfastness. Okay. Um, we've already hit Ephesians. We're talking about temptations. Uh, in verse 15, we have the gospel chain. That's the real 15. Here we go. Okay. Then, uh, let me go back to uh, let no one say uh, God's not tempted and each person is tempted. Okay, here, that's it. And God himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. For the wages of sin is death. If you're thinking about this when this happens, and you can fast forward to the death part, you will... Walk away from this without getting your hands exfoliated. It's just it's just not worth it. It's not worth it to get your hands exfoliated and you spend sixty bucks just to have some stuff you could have bought at bed body and beyond for eight or sixteen or whatever. Uh, it's not worth it. that's what that's what we're trying to say. Okay, and so he goes on, this gets even better. Um, so in verse sixteen he says, do not be deceived. Don't be have your perspective forced, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Remember we said in Romans six twenty-three that the free gift of God is eternal life eternal life. Every good and perfect gift, James says, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow. That's good. God is the same today, tomorrow, the next day. There's no change. I don't have to worry about him doing something different. It's in the book. It's going to do it. It's You can bet on it. You can count on it. You can have El Peace. You can have that confident expectation. Uh, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth. That's God's will. By the word of truth that sets all free. That we should be a kind of first Fruits of his creatures. What is this first fruit? Well, again, these Jews he's writing to is between the the Judy the the old Jewish life, the Torah, the the and then before the Gentiles had come on board, they're right there in that middle part. And as they're there, they're in, scattered abroad, abroad, and all these different nations starting their own churches, beginning to grow with a confident expectation, with a little bit of encouragement, banding together. And now, they are first fruits, they are saved, and what happens next? The next generation is planted, watered, germinated, and what grows? The next generation of Christians. Are you appreciative of the second generation of Christians? You should be, because you are a result of them and the third And the fourth, without them and what we can look back at their trials and what they went through to make us better able to have a better, more abundant crop in the next generation. But I ask you this, as you're walking along encountering various trials, doing better to respond to the situation, to give a good way of life to those who are coming beyond you from a previous generation, how are you in springing forth the next? Generation? Are you so enlightened by the fact that now I'm kind of the big man on the totem pole and I just have to set a good example? I've already done my work. Now I just need for them to follow me and they'll be fine and let them do the rest of the work. Well, if you've been working and you've done the work, that means there's still more work to be done because God's not finished with you. So these first fruits, James was telling these Christians, hey, we need to spring up this next generation of Christians. And that's what we need from you to spring forth the next generation of Christians. Hard question. What are you doing to establish the next generation of Christians in your area of influence? What are you doing? Not what have you done? Because if you can say, well, Brent, I can name you five things I've already done and they're pretty cool and pretty great and I need to rest for a while. I'm going to say, then you need to write a book so that we can all at least take a little bit of your wisdom and move on from that. But beyond that, you need to be writing your second volume or your third volume or your fourth volume and so on. That we have another you know, responsibility not only to respond well, but to establish, help establish that next generation of Christians. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Uh, and that's just a little, a little side note that uh, anytime something good happens to me, sometimes it's like small, but I think it's really good. I think that's like, that's great. You know, no one else would care, but I like that. I'm glad it happened. And I think to myself, did God do that just for me? Or is that just kind of the goings on in life? You know, sometimes life just goes on and it just works out for you. I mean, God's aware, but did he specifically do it? I know he's sovereign and in control. But regardless, I don't even have to answer that question. If it's good for me, I say, thank you, God. Because every good and perfect gift comes from God. No matter what, why, how, when, where, if it's good, it's from God. And I want to be sure and thank Him every time that it happens. So another good piece of uh, living life from from James. Now let's move on here to chapter 2. Yeah, we're just at chapter 2. We're going to skip down to verse 22. We're not going to do the whole book. see, can you see that? Thank you. In verse 22, let me see where I'm going. Okay, here he's given another practical advice. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works. And the faith, oh, I think I want to go sooner than that. Okay, I'm going to have to start up here. This is just the pause. You know, Mark does this sometimes too when he's looking for a passage, so just hang loose. i sure I wrote it down right. All right, we're just going to go with my initial hit. That's going to be 22. All right. That's just not right. Well, it's in the middle of it. This is, it's talking about faith and it's, the whole point is faith without works, that if you have faith, I guess we can do 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if, uh, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Okay. This is it. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and then one of you comes up to him and you say, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving him something needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So then he goes on to some examples uh, that we're not going to get into. Um, but he's talking about Abraham, just to mention. He talks about Rahab, that they just didn't hear from God and believe it. Uh, James says that the demons believe and they tremble. But when uh, they took action, they showed that they believed that what God said. They did what he said, even though they did not understand it. So if you go to someone and you say, hey, be well, be fed, be filled, and, and do they really have legitimate needs, and you just give them a theoretical solution, what good is that? James is addressing this problem that you can come to church and you can hear the lessons and you can live the life. You can understand deep theological truths and the mysteries of God. And you can go home and feel pretty good about yourself. But what are you doing with that after you leave? What's the first thing you do when you walk out the door? I mean, other than go eat lunch. Are you looking for ways to apply the truth that you heard? Because faith without works is dead. Yeah, Abraham did what he should have. Rahab, she hid the spies. She took faith and she had... These were the people coming in to destroy the city. But she had faith that she would be protected. And if she found out that it was a forced perspective and that it wasn't true, she would have been killed. So, I mean, she had nothing to lose at this point. But she did, and as a result, she was saved. Physically, then taken out and brought into the, uh, the, the care of the Israelites, but also in her salvation. So by doing works, by, by taking action, and this is one of the reasons that James, the book of James was, is in a little bit of controversy because some, like Luther, Martin Luther, were saying that J, uh, James had the idea that you were justified by works when he knew that it was faith alone. That was one of his big components Faith alone saves you, which is true, but it's your works that show that faith is alive. So, self-test. If you don't have any works, if you analyze your, your calendar from the last week, your checkbook from the last week, if you're not doing things that you've learned and as you grow and as you're being tutored and mentored by the things of God, if you're not taking action on those, it might be, and I'm not saying it is, but it might be that your faith is not real. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Why was James telling these Christians who needed encouragement about, you guys, some of you are acting like dead men. It's not worth it, it's not good. And dead faith doesn't save. That's important to note. As a result, he says that faith, Our works is not the thing that saves you. It's faith that saves you. Look at your works to see whether or not you are in faith. Can you analyze your life and see whether or not you are doing the things that God's called you to or not? Going on to chapter 3, taming the tongue. That's a big one. Uh, He talks a little bit in in chapter 1, cross-reference himself. James chapter one nineteen talks about being slow to speak, slow to anger. When it comes to your tongue, what do you say when you're angry? Things that a lot of times you wish you could have back. That's when you should say, I need to think about this. Perhaps in my anger, because of the situation that has forced my perspective, I need to come back and take a step back. And I need to look and see what's really going on here. And when you realize at the end, probably it's something silly. Maybe it's really important after all. But the way that you respond and react to it is of crucial importance, that you are slow to speak, quick to anger, and this is why. This is what he says about the tongue in uh, James 3, 1 through 8. So he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So now everyone who's volunteered to teach is just, you know, taking taking the high road, too much responsibility. Really, we're all supposed to be teachers. Am I right? Are you supposed to be teaching somebody somewhere, maybe not in the class, but somewhere about what you're learning and growing in? Yes, we've already talked about that. That is a work to show your faith, and um, it needs to happen. So we're all teachers. So don't become a Christian if you don't want to be uh, judged with the strictness of being a teacher. Uh, in many ways... And if anyone, I love it when Mark does that. When anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Because you know, it's a, the bit in a horse's mouth that controls his whole body, right? So James goes on, he goes on in the chapter, and looks at this beautiful imagery of the tongue being the thing that's very dangerous, he says that it's like a spark that creates a fire that gets out of control. And as you look back at your words sometimes, can can all of you in your mind testify that, yeah, I've seen how my words, whether for a good reason or for a bad reason, have really taken things out of control and gone beyond where I really wanted them to go. James is saying at the beginning, you should take a step back to analyze whether or not What you say or what you're about to say is being spoken in love. Speak the truth in love. That's the important thing. But before you even do that, you need to step back and make sure what you're about to speak in love is the truth. Yes, you're tracking with me here now. We're cruising. And so that's what you need to analyze. What if you are not sure it's the truth after all? Because how many times have you said somewhere in the Bible? I don't know where, but it says... And then you go and check it out, and it does not say that. It says something close, but in the context, it means something different. So how do you know? Number one, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. What else do you need to do? Read your Bibles. If you read your Bibles, the first read-through, you may not catch everything. The second read-through, it gets easier. And third, it's kind of like producing endurance. Christians, if you're a Christian, you should read your book. Don't just come to church to hear us talk about it. Read your Bibles. Moving on from that, you should study and get down not just a cursory glance, but uh, a, a deeper study. And whenever something happens and you think, you know what? I think God has something to say about this. I've heard someone somewhere say, you know what that is? That is God's invitation for you to do what? Study that topic and if you don't know where to start there are people that can point you in the right direction and certainly we'd be happy to there's also the internet be careful it may point you in other perspectives but uh there's also concordances there's other god's daily promise there's several things that you can study god's word and be ready so that when it comes time to speak that's what we're talking about here you will speak the truth because you have stopped for a second and said you know what." Before I say something I'm not supposed to, I'm going to go and make sure what I'm about to say is right. And then come back and say it with love, because that's how we grow. Now, if someone comes to you and says something in a mean and ugly way, they do not take God's perspective. They do not tame their tongue. And they just blurt it out at you, and you are offended. What are you going to do to teach them a lesson? That's right you are going to respond in the right way. Now, all of a sudden, you have an invitation. You have a specific God-given invitation that whatever the subject is, other than taming the tongue, which you'll want to study on that at that point, and give them all the reasons like uh, Ephesians 4.29... let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only words that are good and helpful at the time that they are given. You want to study up all of those, sure. But whatever the topic is, whatever made the problem, what does God's word say about that? That's your invitation. And you thought, you know, I thought God wasn't even speaking to me. I just hear a bunch of people yelling at me and getting mad at me every time God is inviting you to learn and grow in the things of God. Is that practical? That's extremely practical. And that's what James is trying to help you understand when he says, faith without works is dead. Don't mess it up by what? You say in chapter four, he talks about being haughty and the humble. And he says, be careful. I'll just read a little bit here. In chapter four, what causes quarrels and what causes uh, fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. And so you murder, you covet, you do all these things because you're not getting your way. Perspective change. If you are in Christ, you are not supposed to get your way. Now, have you ever heard of divine wrath? Righteous indignation? That's when God's not getting His way. Should that upset you? Yes, in a manner of speaking, we don't need to lash out. But again, God's invitation for you to study and move on to learn about that particular thing. For you, it might be abortion. For someone else, it might be I don't know, what are some other hot topics in the church? We, we hear them all the time. Politics is another hot topic. What does the Bible have to say about that? If you're all into the politics and you sit there and you watch Fox and you, just, you don't even say the words, you're just thinking them. That's your invitation. What does God's Word say about politics? How can I as a Christian respond to my second and third generation of Christians that I've been trying to water and bring along in, in faith that I want to be an example to them? What am I going to say? What am I going to do when they ask me or when I just want to take a little teaching time? That is what Christianity is about. We closing out and uh, chapter five, as we look, it talks about patience and prayer. And I'm just going to say a few things about prayer as we, as we close out. Uh, at the very beginning, he talked about, um, he talked a little bit about prayer, asking for wisdom. If anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask from God, who gives to all without uh, any kind of impartiality. James also talks about not being partial to other people; always be fair. But uh, let's look here. In oh, I had a couple of pictures. I didn't even. I'm not even been doing PowerPoint. I don't care to do you. Yeah, that's funny. I wasn't talking about you. Was the picture? So so prayer. Um, you see this little boy praying. What is that? The typical posture of prayer. Am I right? What? Oh, there it is. It's catching up. Thank you. Uh, the typical picture of prayer. That's kind of the posture. That's what we, this kid learned at an early age. Praise the Lord. The other picture, I was driving down 1960 and I saw a sign that said, Can you read that? God hears our prayers at a car wash. Just kind of, kind of right, you know, washing sins away, all that stuff. So while I took that picture, and and also KSBJ, you know, their slogan is what. God listens. It's kind of a double entendre there. He listens to the radio and the Christian songs that they play, sure. But he also listens to your prayer, right? Well, when I took this picture at the car wash, there was a lady standing at a bus stop right there, and she had a, a child. And so after I took the picture, you know, she was like, you know, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm taking this picture. I'm going to be talking about prayer on Sunday. Uh Do you pray? And she said, yes. And I said, why do you pray? She said, well, first, let me just let you know I'm a Muslim. I said, well, do Muslims pray? She said, yes. I said, good. I said, uh, why do you pray? And she said, well, it just makes me feel good. And I said, okay, well, when you pray, does God get something out of it or do you get something out of it? Well, both. What do you get out of it? I just get this good feeling. Okay. What does God get out of it? That I'm talking to him. So everything well, you know, Paul uh see, Mark talked last week about prayer is a dialogue, dia logos. It is a dialogue going both ways. Uh everything for her it was all one way. God appreciated it, but it was more directed to God, which uh is pretty typical in people's understanding. I believe that prayer is our worst activity as Christians across the board. How did you learn to pray? If you ask yourself, how did this little boy learn to pray? He didn't read about it. He's too young. How did he learn how to pray? Where did he get that posture? Someone's modeling that to him. What does he say in his prayer? Mark talked about the the prayer that he learned by rote. Someone taught him how to say a prayer. And in that prayer, he just repeated what he learned. And that's what we do. We hear people praying like if, if I prayed up here, which we didn't even pray today. Shame. If if I pray up here, what do I do? I say, dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, and then I go through all these things, give us this, give us that, help us here, thank you for this, thank you for that, amen, and I sit down and then Mark starts talking, right? Where's the dialogue? There's not any. So if you are young in Christ and you came in and you said, okay, let's see what Christianity is all about, oh, great, they're praying, let's see what they do, oh, Huh, prayer is just where you talk to God. It was just modeled before me, right? But I didn't model it well at all because I didn't stand here for 10 minutes listening and meditating on God in his word, which is a part of prayer. In order to teach that, we do a horrible job of teaching people how to pray. So here are some other uh, important prayer notes that he says. He says in James, he says, if anyone is among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Everyone's ears pop up, pop up because some of you have been sick before, right? And everyone wants to know how to get unsick. So, here we are. I mean, this is word for word. He's saying, um, in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Great. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Great. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Wait. What's that again? How many, when you have a prayer deed? Do you ask other people to pray for you and then you begin to confess your sins? Anyone? We all get excited about the first part. We're not doing anything when it comes to the second part. And when Jesus was with his disciples, they were trying to cast out a demon. They couldn't. Jesus came and he cast out the demon. The disciples went to him privately and they said, why could we cast out this demon? What did Jesus say? This one only comes out through much prayer and fasting. How often do you ask some other people to pray and fast for you? How often do you pray and fast for yourself? Why do we just pick certain things about the Bible in order to live our Christian lives? Isn't that what we do? Because we leave out these other things that we don't even want to talk about. Because why? We don't want to do it. And we look around and it doesn't seem like anyone else is doing it. As a result, we're good. So I want to change your perspective just a little bit. How many of you have ever heard the comment, when two or more are gathered in my name, I'm in their midst. So Jesus or God must be here. That's Matthew 18. Now, wouldn't that be crazy for God to limit himself to only when two people get together? And if you think about it, you think, well, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. But when two people are gathered, he is there. So it's true, right? Right. Well, let me ask you this. As a church of this many, if you go and pray and ask your friends to pray, and we have 400 people praying for you, and a guy over the church next door only has 50 people, and they're praying for him, who's God going to respond to? Well, he's going to respond to each one equally and fairly based on the merits of their own situation, not on the amount of people you get to pray for you. But we say when two or more are gathered, there must be more power in prayer of God's people. Is that true? Is it? It's not true. This is why. God is the same today, tomorrow, and the next day. No matter what, God, no matter how many people are praying, no matter how hard you pray, God is the same It's not about how many people pray. In fact, when Jesus prayed probably one of the most passionate prayers of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He asked the disciples to come along with him. He took three even deeper. And what did he tell them to do? Guys, this is serious. Pray that this cup has passed from me. Is that what he said? No. He said, you guys, y'all stay here and watch. I am going to go deeper by himself. And he prayed. And we read this fervent prayer in Matthew. He comes back and what are they doing? They're sleeping. He wakes them up and this time he says, would you watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation? He didn't even ask him to pray for what he was praying about. It's not about how many people are praying for you. Now, if a bunch of people are praying for you, is that bad? No, it's great. It lets us all kind of know what's going on. We can be your hands and feet. It's more about information than about God. Now, oh, Champion Forest is praying. I need to respond. There's not power in prayer like that. There is power in prayer. And James says that the effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's not how many people are praying. It's who is praying. Who, Who is praying with their spiritual eyes and ears. He gives the example of Elijah and he says, Elijah prayed after it hadn't rained for three, two and a half years and Elijah prayed and it brought rain. Wow, he must have been righteous. Well, I don't know about that, but I do know that prior to him praying that prayer in First Kings 18, God had already told him that he would send the rain. Elijah was just praying for what God had already said he was going to do. Are we praying God's will are just what seems right to us. If you don't know anyone who acts who lacks wisdom, what do you need to do? Ask God. Ask God what to pray for because it's not how many people pray, it's how spiritual you are. That sounds a, little, well, sounds a little uppity for Christians, but yes, you need to be the spiritual prayer of a righteous individual. That's what avails much, and it avails much more with you in your relationship to God than what God's going to do in His sovereignty. Now there are good examples in Acts we don't, can't get to where he says that God's people prayed and Peter was released from prison. Praise the Lord. There's a great t- teaching on that. There's great topics of these. But as we close, I wanted to ask this question if you give me three more minutes. One more question about our perspective on God. Are we really looking at the truth of God or are we just praying and doing things based on how we've seen other people do and we really have a miss or a forced perspective on the way that we live our life. This book is the way to change that. Wayne Watson wrote a song called, Would I Know You? And the, the premise is, if, if God were to step into your house sometime or, or at, at your business or at a restaurant, would you even recognize him based on your understanding of who God is? Are we so skewed in our understanding that we would miss him? This is a presentation just for our point for home.
1: Would I know you now if you walked into the room? If you still the crowd, if your life dispelled the gloom, and if I saw you? Your form pierced round I wonder if I'd love you now Would I know you now If you walked into this place Would I cause you shame would my games be your disgrace? Or would I worship you? Full upon my face I wonder if I'd know you now For heavy images I've painted So distorted who you are
0: That even if
1: the world was looking They could not see you The real you Have I changed the true reflection To fulfill my own design Making you what I want Not showing you forth divine I miss you now, if you left and closed the door, would my flesh cry out, I don't need you anymore, or would I follow you, would I be restored? I wonder, I wonder, will I ever wonder, wonder, would I know you now?
0: Our Heavenly Father, as we close out today, we're thankful the way that you give us second and third chances father we thank you for your word that we don't have to gain a forced perspective from others we can go straight to the source and we can pray and your holy spirit will guide and to teach us father we ask today would we even recognize you if you walked in because of a forced perspective for whatever reason father i pray that you would help us to be people of the word thank you for mark as he teaches each week i pray that that would inspire us to go deeper not just be settled with what we hear so that we can take action, Father. That is our prayer, and that's our desires. The biblical literacy class of Champion Forest Baptist Church. We pray this in Jesus' name.